Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Fictor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Amy Reed Sandoval, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her book, Socially Undocumented, Identity and Immigration Justice, is just out from Oxford University Press. In Socially Undocumented, Amy Reed Sandoval reframes the question of immigration justice by focusing on the historical development and lived experience of socially undocumented identity, drawing on ethnography, phenomenological analysis, storytelling, and a non-ideal theory approach. She tracks the development of racialized, class-based, and gendered elements of socially undocumented identity and the unjust constraints that target this identity. She looks at concrete steps for how to address socially undocumented oppression, not just at the level of immigration policy, but also through the work of non-state actors and the socially undocumented themselves. Um, Hello, Amy, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, So let's start out by having you tell us a bit about yourself, um, your background as a philosopher, and how you came to write this book. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I guess I, I wasn't really exposed to philosophy until I got to college. I was originally a, a vocal performance music education major, um, but I happened to take a, a philosophy class that was very inspiring to me and um, an intro class. And so I was very uh, yeah, inspired to continue learning more about philosophical questions and, and methods. Um, and I, and I, though I was born and raised in Allentown, I've had the opportunity in my adult life to live in a number of different places. Um, And so those experiences uh, have inspired uh, the particular philosophical questions that I'm most interested in um, and the arguments themselves. Uh, So so one in in relation to the book and how I ended up uh, working on some of the arguments uh, that I developed therein, I lived for a period of time in my early 20s in Madrid, Spain. Um, I I started out as a student there, um, and then I came back on a tourist visa, and I ended up overstaying my visa. And so there was a period of time when I was legally undocumented in Madrid, Spain, but I wasn't really oppressed as an undocumented person there um, because of my white skin privilege. Um, And I lived in an apartment building with uh, uh, some migrants to Spain from Ecuador, um, all of whom had legal permission to be living in Madrid, um, but but they were treated as so-called illegals while I was given a different type of treatment. And so um, that's one of my experiences uh, living abroad and traveling that um, have inspired inspired, uh, the way in which I I do philosophy and the sorts of arguments that I've been working out. Yeah, and that you so effectively used a story just then to illuminate, I think, one of the main um, motors of the book, this fact that people can be legally undocumented but not treated 
uh, as undocumented and other people can be legally documented or legally in a place um, and treated as not allowed to be there. Um, and this use of stories runs throughout your book to the point that you are actually doing ethnography um, as part of your philosophical work. So will you talk about um, why you begin with a story and then how you are engaging with stories to do your philosophical work in this book? Sure. Um, I think the stories are helpful. I mean, they help us empathize uh, with uh, the experiences of the folks that we're thinking about and writing about. So I think that's very important. Uh, at, at the same time, I think that a lot of my work is rooted in place. So um, in this book, I, I am thinking about immigration injustice in the United States, um, perhaps in, in the Americas more broadly, um, but with a lot of reference to the U.S.-Mexico borderlands region. And so I think that uh, telling stories helps us think about place in ways that can be philosophically illuminating. Um, Another reason that I like kind of stories and, and questions of, of place is that um, in, in this book and in other aspects of my work, um, I'm thinking about social identity, right? So how uh, being socially undocumented, as I call it, uh, functions as a social identity. And I think that an identity-based approach uh, to theorizing about immigration injustice and other questions um, requires us to try to think uh from the perspective of uh, the groups about which we're writing and, and thinking, right, to, to try to do that. It's, it's not going to be possible if you're not a member of that group. But I think that um, listening to stories can help us to understand um, the, the perspectives of marginalized groups and you know, folks that we're, that we're representing in our philosophical work. Um, and, and just one final point about stories and ethnography. Um, I am married to an anthropologist. And so, uh, while, so while, while I was doing my PhD in philosophy and, you know, why, while, while, as I've been developing my philosophical work, I have been um, joining my partner um, uh, on different kind of fieldwork uh, experiences. And I've, I've been able to see um, how ethnographic interviews, semi-structured interviews and anthropological uh, fieldwork can actually give way to very very important philosophical conversations and can help unearth uh, philosophical questions and ideas that aren't always accessible um, via more traditional means and methods. And so I also think that my direct exposure to ethnographic methods um, is part of what inspired me to use stories and use ethnography um, as a tool for, um, for doing philosophy. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, it's a rich interdisciplinary <laughs> context in which you're working, right? That, that uh, being so close to somebody who's working in a different discipline um, and the way that it's coming to inform the philosophic, that's really interesting. So did you, um, did you do formal training in ethnography or was it that you developed that practice through that experience of your partner? Yeah. So I have not done any formal training, um, but I did. Um, let's see. I mean, I, I, so, so my partner, some, some of his work is focused on um, kind of gender questions in Oaxaca, Mexico, right? So the experiences of uh, women uh, who migrate from, from rural Oaxaca to Mexico city in the United States. And so as a graduate student, um, sometimes I would accompany him when he was interviewing women in the field because you know, due to kind of a, uh, gender dimensions, right? Sometimes it would be easier. The women would feel more comfortable speaking to him if I was involved. And, and sometimes I would end up kind of 
taking over the interview in certain respects because um, uh, his interview participants would feel more comfortable speaking with me. And so I think that um, not not to take away, because obviously this was his project and he was controlling, you know, he he was guiding the interviews in many respects. Um, But I think that, um, you know, being involved um, in in a way that um, perhaps made some women feel more comfortable being interviewed, that gave me some kind of direct uh, training in in ethnographic methods. And and that that is what made me think, wow, um, I can incorporate this into my own philosophical methodology. And it can also teach me things about, um, you know, uh, different philosophical systems and different different worldviews that I think can can be illuminating in my own philosophical work. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think your book shows just how powerful ethnography can be for philosophical work. And so it's, I think, really helpful to give us an insight into how a philosopher can develop skills of ethnography and um, it, that you had this like real-time practice under somebody who could really help you develop those skills, right? And in support of a project um that sort of that um learning in that kind of direct apprenticeship and then being able to then use it in your own work i think is helpful insight into how these skills can be um developed for people who get interested from what you're doing so thanks for that insight into how that happened um and that like kind of real in the world training that you did is that's really powerful no wonder the ethnographies in your book are so um so rich. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, so what does it mean to be socially undocumented? Yeah. So a socially undocumented person is someone who is presumed to be legally undocumented on the mere basis of their physical appearance and who is then subjected to uh, demeaning immigration related constraints on that basis. And while many people who are socially undocumented are also legally undocumented, it's actually possible to have legal permission to be in the United States and nevertheless be socially undocumented. And on the flip side, there are cases in which one might be legally undocumented, but not socially undocumented. So I I talked about my experiences living in Madrid in my early 20s. I was someone who was legally undocumented, but not socially undocumented. And in the United States, there are many people who are, in fact, legally undocumented, um, but not socially undocumented. Um, So I'm so uh, in in my book, I'm trying to unpack what it means to be socially undocumented as an identity, and also how that figures into our how it ought to figure into our understanding of uh, uh, immigration justice. But I'm also trying to distinguish, um, for certain purposes, um, socially undocumented experience from legally undocumented experience, even though there is a tremendous overlap um, between those two groups. Right. Yeah. And you argue that uh, being socially undocumented is a real social identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do this through, you know, you have two major way, uh, figures who help you do this. You talk about Linda Alcoff's visible identities and then Pierre Bourdieu's habitus. Yes. So you talk about what you mean by it being, so being socially undocumented is a real social identity and how you use um, the work of Alcoff and Bourdieu to bring that out. Yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, I, I, 
I think about socially undocumented identity um, in part in terms of its embodiment, right? So um, uh, the work of Gloria Saldua, you know, I, I, I consulted in in this book, right? She she tells a story um, that's that's been engaged quite a bit of, of Pedro, right? In her book Borderlands: La Frontera, right? She talks about Pedro, who is Mexican American, who has legal permission to be in the United States. He's a farm worker in Texas. Um, and, uh, you know, along comes immigration enforcement. Pedro and Ansaldua's story is working in the fields alongside his family. And um, suddenly he sees immigration enforcement um, appear on the horizon. And his his aunt says to him, don't run away. They're going to think you're del otro lado, right? You're from the other side of the border. And uh, Pedro, who has, again, legal permission to be in the United States, he is a U.S. citizen. Um, he sees immigration enforcement and he runs away, right? It just, um, it, uh, this, this, this experience, this embodied experience overtakes him and he runs away um, and he's ultimately apprehended by immigration enforcement and he's deported to Mexico. He had never been to Mexico before. And um, in this kind of very heartbreaking uh, part of Ansaldúa's narrative, Pedro tries to um, kind of raise his fist in defiance and he, he can't do it, right? Um, it's just something pushing down on his fist, right? And um, you, you kind of see here, um, you know, Pedro was a legally undocumented person, a U.S. citizen who's having this embodied, socially undocumented experience. And so um, engaging Ansaldúa's work um, and the work of um, a number of um, Latinx immigration philosophers um, took, took me on the path or think, un unpacking what it means to be um, embodied, have an undocumented embodiment in the United States and elsewhere. And so... Uh, Linda Alcoff's work on visible identities um, emphasizes uh, the ways in which uh, uh, sex and gender and race uh, are embodied, uh, and and they are they are real identities because they are embodied. So they're socially they're socially constructed, but they're nevertheless real um, because um, they are they are embodied, and in turn, this embodiment uh, gives way to a, a unique uh, horizon, uh, you know, a, a hermeneutic horizon. She she draws on uh, draws upon Gadamer's work here, uh, and so the idea here is that kind of through these embodied experiences that, that are impacting how one sees oneself and is seen in society, this is ultimately going to uh, uh, produce a unique. Uh, standpoint and a unique way of viewing and interpreting the world, right? So also, so um, e even though you know race and, se and 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 sex and gender, these are social constructs. Um, we can kind of see see how they're embodied and and learn from the ways in which this embodiment um, gives way to uh, unique perspectives and and ways of knowing. And so um, I think that socially undocumented identity operates in this way. Now, in, in her work, um, Alcoff uh, focuses on uh, sex, gender, and, and race. And, and she wants to say that class identity um, has embodied components, um, but she thinks that, that class is not embodied in, in the same way that um, race and sex and gender are. And I think that I, I understand why Alcoff carves out that distinction. Obviously, there are ways in which um, kind of class identity is is malleable. It can be hidden in ways that you know racial identity can't, for example, in, in certain cases. 
Um, but, but I think it's important not to overstate that, that distinction. Uh, and I think that the work of Pierre Bourdieu um, is, is helpful um, when he talks about the embodiment of class. I think that it can be very productively put into dialogue with um, Alcoff's work on embodied social identity. Um, so for Bourdieu, he talks about ways in which um, you know, working class identity is embodied. I mean, he's, he's writing in a particular context, right? He's, you know, writing in France, right? But he talks about things like, um, well, first of all, in, in terms of kind of an upper class identity, there is a certain restraint in terms of one's speech and one's movement. There is a, there's a calmness, a serenity um, that, that, that's part of that class identity. Um, that's something that one grows up um, with that, that that happens in terms of one's interaction with one's environment. On the other hand, um, working class identity, um, it, 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 it has different types of manifestations. For, for men, it might involve um, uh, kind of certain um, kind of athletic practices, looking strong in a certain way. But on, on the other hand, um, sometimes a working class identity is associated with, um, you know, have, having an embodiment that it, it doesn't necessarily look like you, you've been able to spend lots of time at the gym, whereas I know the upper class is going to be very slender, you know, having spent lots of time exercising and going to the gym. He talks about certain dietary habits that can give, give rise to um, certain um, aspects of, of one's appearance, like he talks about meat eating and redness of the face in association with uh, working class identity. And of course, um, uh, Bourdieu's work is, again, um, in many respects, specific to the, the sociocultural context in which he's writing. But I think that seriously engaging his work demonstrates that um, the, the visible components of class identity aren't so easily abandoned and that uh, that, that that class habitus, habitus, um, is, is not only embodied, but is also giving rise to ways of viewing the world and, and ways of seeing and being seen. So I want to bring Bourdieu into um, Alcoff's discussion. Um, and I think that that's relevant to socially undocumented identity, which has um, racial and gender and class-based components, at least on my view. Yeah, and that this um, this is where your analysis of oppression really um has its grip, right, is in this um, relationship between embodiment, visibility, social practices about how people get structured um, through things like work and the kind of exploitation through work. So will you talk about how um, socially undocumented people get targeted for oppression, how that works? Yes, absolutely. So, uh Obviously, there are many different uh, ways in which socially undocumented uh, people are oppressed on the basis of um, how they're viewed, how, how they're seen. Okay. I, I do talk quite a bit about socially undocumented oppression in places of work, right? So um, the mere fact that someone who looks a certain way, who, who is read as socially undocumented, is going to be hired for work that is uh, more dirty and dangerous, uh, work that uh, makes one much more vulnerable to exploitation and certain forms of harassment at work, Um really independently of one's legal status in the United States. Um, so the sociologist um, uh, Romero, um, who um, whose work I consult uh, uh, quite a bit in the book, talks about how uh, Mexican-American nannies in the U.S.-Mexico uh, borderlands um, are, uh, are, are 
paid less or kind of oppressed as legally undocumented people, um, you know, in, in the domestic realm, despite the fact that they have legal permission to be in the United States. Um, so, so one aspect of this embodied oppression is just the fact that um, you're, you're going to be hired uh, for, for certain types of, of labor um, that are clearly uh, racialized and, and class-based in, in, in unique ways, and you're going to be paid less on that basis. Um, and so, so that, that's one aspect. I talk about ways in which people who are both pregnant and socially undocumented are vulnerable to uh, certain types of oppression as well, right? So um, in, in part of the book, I, I explore uh, the experiences of uh, Mexican women who cross the border from Mexico into the United States while visibly pregnant with legal permission um, because they want to seek prenatal care and sometimes give birth in the United States. Um, so despite the fact that they have legal permission to enter the U.S., um, uh, these women are subjected to um, enhanced interrogation at the U.S.-Mexico border um, and lots of questioning about the, the legality and legitimacy of their actions within the U.S. and in hospitals as well. And again, this is because they are visibly socially undocumented um, and pregnant. So those are a couple of examples of ways in which um, one's embodied uh, experience of being socially undocumented makes one vulnerable to certain types of oppression. Yeah. And I, some of the stories about um, how some of these women negotiated being pregnant as crossing the border um, as they were crossing the border, you know, taking risks mm -hmm. to try to either hide the fact that they're pregnant or hide the fact that there's anything that they're seeking medical care for their pregnancy. Um, I found this really illuminating of this, of how the, um, how a socially un undocumented identity can come to be embodied. So do you mind talking about one of those examples? Sure. Um, so, so in my chapter, um, so, so I did ethnographic research on, on this question because it's something that um, hasn't uh, received as much attention as it, as it ought to, I think, um, uh, broadly speaking, not just within philosophy, but outside of philosophy. Um, so I opened that chapter with the story of uh, a, a woman, uh, I call her Salma, um, she didn't want her real name to be used, uh, who uh, had a high-risk pregnancy. She was put on bed rest um, uh, for uh, kind of the second half of her pregnancy. Um, she was uh, based in Ciudad Juarez, so, you know, border town on, on the Mexico side. And she was told that she needed to be, be on bed rest and that, um, that standing up and walking around or sitting upright for long periods of time could uh, actually put her life at risk and, and that of her, of her uh, baby as well. And so Salma um, was seeking medical care on both sides of the border. She had an OBGYN in Juarez, but also in El Paso, and she had legal permission to enter the United States. And so she would enter the U.S., um, by car, um, her husband would, would drive the car and um, she would be sitting in, in the passenger seat. And so um, for those who have crossed um, the border from Juarez into El Paso, you know, you know there can be a wait of a couple of hours right now. The, the wait is longer. Um, so while she was um, kind of uh, in, in the distance, while she wasn't visible um, uh, to immigration enforcement, she would put her seat all the way back. She would, she would recline in her car following her doctor's order. But as she approached the border, she would become more nervous and she would sit upright uh, in the passenger seat 
despite um, the aforementioned risks associated with doing that. And she said it was because she didn't want to look like someone who was sick and seeking medical care in the United States, um, that she had fears about being perceived as a so-called illegal, despite the fact that, again, she had a legal permission. Everything that she was doing was legal, from crossing the border itself to getting prenatal care in the United States to giving birth in the United States. Um, and, and so you see in, in this case that she was very much socially illegalized, right? Um, that, that having legal permission to enter the, the United States um, wasn't enough to protect her from socially undocumented embodiment and oppression. And in fact, she was uh, putting her own life at risk uh, because of, of this socially undocumented oppression. And so, so in this case, I mean, not, not only is it, an ex- is it an example of socially undocumented embodiment and how that makes one vulnerable, um, I, I argue in the book that to be uh, pregnant and socially undocumented, that that often makes one uh, one, of the, one of the most illegalized of all subjects in the United States. Yeah, um, that yeah, that story was so vivid to me about just this sort of you, and you talk about um, just the interaction between her and her husband in the car around her sitting up, and this sort of like she has to make this decision mm-hmm. about how to cross the border and just what seems like such a small action, right? Just sitting up in a car, but in the context of this high risk pregnancy and her having to negotiate all these factors and make this decision, I felt like it really brought across that, um, that experience of embodying a social identity, um, even if legally that's not your identity. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, and um, so, so, so not only Salma, but so many women that I interviewed had this internalized fear of, uh, of being deemed illegal. Um, yeah, d- dis- despite the legality of, of their actions. And so, um, I, yes, I think that the, that the, that these stories um, do make vivid um, kind of the, the intensity of, of this oppression um, and also, you know, w- ways in which kind of the, the, the gendered and sexist components of socially undocumented oppression are particularly acute. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting because you also analyze these um, interactions that then happen between people in healthcare mm-hmm. um, and people who are coming across the border and that these folks like midwives and doctors and nurses start to coach people about how to cross the border. And I was thinking about, there's so much that has to happen already in prenatal care and so many messages that have to get across, right? Like there's, there's a huge information um, sort of download that happens in prenatal care. And then just thinking about the added work of just how to get across the border Um, when you already have legal permission, right? Like that, that extra work that has to then be done in that interaction and the realness of the shaping of that healthcare. um, I, you know, I, I, you got to that also through ethnography, correct? Yes. Um, and yes. And so interviewing um, not only socially undocumented women, but also uh, uh, care providers, midwives and, and OBGYNs on both sides of the border. Um, yes. And I was very struck by the fact that many doctors and midwives actually give doctor's notes or things resembling doctor's notes to their patients who are crossing the border to present at the border. I mean, these are not legal documents, right? But just 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 like um, a student, right? Uh, a student yeah. might present their professor or you know teacher with a doctor's note for why they didn't come to class. Um, pregnant, socially undocumented people are 
presenting uh, doctor's notes at the border. And, and, and these doctor's notes um, uh, emphasize that the patients have already, you know, paid, prepaid for their prenatal care, right, which is which is also um, kind of very ethically murky territory, right, the doctors are having to write about this and incorporate this into their, their visits and interactions with, with their patients, right. But um, the fact that uh, medical care providers on both sides of the border are now playing this strange role in giving uh, what documents that are being used as kind of immigration and kind of border crossing cards in certain ways. That, that's, all, that's also, um, I think, very surprising and, and disturbing. And again, uh, shows um, the social aspect of illegality in this country. Yeah. I, yeah. And I also, another detail that has just really stuck with me was, I think it's a midwife who um, had this practice of noting if somebody received pre-medical prenatal care in Mexico saying no prenatal care um, received in U.S., but received in Mexico. And this is remarkable because if people deliver in the United States but received their care in Mexico, the, it sounds like the practice is to say that they received no prenatal mm-hmm. care. Yeah. That's right. And, and sometimes um, it'll be the same company because the labs at which people are, you know, getting kind of different types of testing, for example, it, it, it's often the same company that has laboratories on both sides of the border. Right. <laughs> but uh, if it's done on the Mexico side, um, what gets written in their chart is no prenatal care. And, and it might seem like this takes us a few steps away from thinking about immigration and border crossings. But it is another part of undocumented experience uh, for pregnant people who are, you know, crossing the border and being treated uh, um, as illegals, right? For for them, it's not just at the border; it's also, you know, these medical encounters in hospitals, where, um, in certain respects, their their ability to care for their child is is to them, it feels like it's being called into question, right? Imagine doing all of the work of getting prenatal care in Mexico and having no prenatal care being written in your chart. I mean, imagine how how that feels for some for um, an expecting parent, for a pregnant person. So, um, yeah, it could possibly shape clinical pe- practice. Exactly. Like the delivery, right? Exactly. Could have real effects. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one one woman that I interviewed said that she she believes that she had to have a C-section because uh, her prenatal care in Mexico wasn't honored in the U.S. And so I don't I don't take a position on that. Obviously, I'm not a medical doctor myself, but I think that it's significant that she thinks that and feels that way. Um, I, I think that that says something about uh, the, her medical care and and her experience of birth um, and also um, her, her socially undocumented experience at the border and in the hospital. Yeah. yeah, and the relationship between how labor goes and whether someone feels safe while they're in labor. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it really reminds me of somebody you draw in several times in the book about Charles Mills talking about this um, norming of space, right? And that in this practice at the border, Mexico becomes a space that can't produce knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Even though, as you said, it's these same labs um, that suddenly it's like, oh, that that just doesn't count because it's in that space and not in the space of the United States. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's um, there's a lot of epistemic injustice um, uh, happening um, in, in, in the sphere of socially undocumented oppression. And that's that's just one um, egregious example of it. Yeah. So to to talk about um, 
socially undocumented identity and embodiment and interpretive horizon, you give this history of immigration policy, um, and especially in relationship to Mexico. Uh, and so will you talk about why that history is so important to understanding social identity? Like, why did you need to go through, for instance, the, um, is it the Treaty of Hidalgo? Mm -hmm. Guadalupe Hidalgo, yep. Okay, yeah. And like why that needs to inform the work that you're doing on socially undocumented identity? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for a couple of reasons, um, you know, f first of all, I think for, for those who, um, not necessarily who are skeptical, but are, who are um, kind of new to thinking about these questions, I think that the, the historical background can uh, really help put into perspective um, these sorts of embodied practices and experiences of socially undocumented people, right? And so to really understand, because I, I, I have um, you know, tried, tried to share some stories about, for example, pregnant people who are socially undocumented crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and, and sometimes I've received kind of quizzical and, and, and who are kind of taking these steps to conceal their pregnancies or even you know, engaging in risky behavior. And I've received quizzical looks like, well, well, you know, if they have legal permission to do this, you know, why, why would they put themselves in this situation? Why, why are these people so fearful? You know, why exactly is Pedro and Ansaldúa's story running away from immigration enforcement, right? And so I think that the historical background that shows, um, uh, again, the social dimensions of immigrant illegality in, in U.S. history is really important to make sense of these embodied experiences, right? And, and so that, that's, that's one reason why I, I spend time with the, kind of the historical background. Another reason is that I, that I do think that the class components of socially undocumented oppression are very important. And I think that the historical background is also um, a, a class story, right? So Thinking about, so, so you have in U.S. history, the repatriation of Mexican ori origin people during the Great Depression, where, you know, uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, including um, uh, Mexican-Americans who were born and raised in the U.S., had never been to Mexico, um, are being deported during the Great Depression because Mexicans were being um, scapegoated for the economic crisis um, in the U.S., and shortly thereafter, you have the Bracero program, right? The guest worker program of the of, of the U.S., the first guest worker program in which uh, working class Mexican laborers are brought to the United States under really degrading conditions to perform certain types of labor. And they're, they're, they're ex exploited and, and mistreated and they're not given um, a full battery of rights. And so I, I think that... Um, that, and, and, and often um, being hired without contracts. So, so many Braceros came to the U.S. and ended up getting uh, hired uh, for, for jobs um, Ill illegally, right? Um, despite the fact that they came with legal permission and it was, you know, em employers who were kind of pushing this process along. And so I think that once you, once you see um, kind of this, this historical background, it's also clear that, um, that this is kind of racial and, and gender-based oppression, but it is also class oppression and, and, um, and, and the history uh, makes that apparent um, in ways that I think are very important. Yeah, and that connection between then immigration policy and embodiment, right, that that 
what it means to be socially constructed at that level of the immigration policy itself. Exactly, um, exactly. And um, and the, um, the the social forces shaping socially and documented embodiment are are huge. And they go back to the very founding of, of the United States and the first laws about who can become a naturalized citizen. And so um, so it's kind of th- these these embodied experiences and, and the stories that I that I try to tell in the book, I think that they become uh, more intelligible for, for folks who are new to thinking about these questions what, once you understand um, kind of the, 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 the enormity of the social forces, the historical forces um, that, um, that combine to uh, shape socially undocumented experience in the contemporary U.S. Yeah. And one of the things I love about what you do in the book is that you do this work to show this, how oppression is working. But then you also talk about how people who have a socially undocumented identity use their interpretive horizon uh, to resist and respond to, understand, and even transform um, how they're being treated and the oppression that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so there's this way in which you you really do focus on the um, how they take that interpretive horizon and do something with it. So will you talk about that? Sure. Um, I, I think that this is one of the benefits of uh uh, taking on an identity-based approach to thinking about immigration justice, um, because obviously, if we're thinking about being undocumented in terms of social identity, well, that raises questions about um, the perspectives of people who have this identity and the work that they're already doing. And you know, I, as I state in the book, I'm not socially undocumented myself, and so my work on socially undocumented horizons, I I, I, I want to be uh, appropriately. Um, tentative um, in, kind of in, in making uh, in developing this descriptive account, and I want it to be part. I hope that it will be part of a conversation with socially undocumented people themselves. Um, but I think that in, in consulting um, socially undocumented activism and uh, an interdisciplinary scholarship on um, socially undocumented experience, uh, I, I think that one thing that that, that seems to me to uh, become clear is that socially undocumented people uh, often very clearly uh, have a very clear sense of the precise ways in which they're they're being oppressed in the U.S. and and they're actively taking steps to challenge that oppression. So I I describe it in terms of a double bind, right, using Marilyn Fry's theory of or uh, notion of a double bind, right, this idea that um, socially undocumented people on, on the one hand, they're compelled by social circumstances to engage in certain types of labor, right, as- associated with, um, often associated with Latino, Latina, Latinx immigrants. Um, and, and, but, but when that, that, and that labor is often, um, uh, they're, they're often exploited on the basis of doing that labor, right? And and what, once they, they engage in this labor, um, they are socially illegalized on that basis, right? So they're accused of uh, stealing jobs from uh, so-called you know native U.S. citizens, right? And they're they're subjected to all sorts of um, stereotyping on the basis of doing this work. So it really is a double bind um, in which socially undocumented people find themselves. And so uh, socially undocumented people 
I argue, um, often take steps to challenge the double bind through music and activism. Um, there's a there's a, a a group of musicians called Los Tigres del Norte. Um, they're they're from Mexico, and they they uh, have a, a song about. Uh, being an undocumented Mexican in the United States um, who's experiencing lots of oppression, um, but o- over time saves up lots of money and is, in, is suddenly in a position to live quite well in the U.S. But in this popular song, um, he decides that he wants to take his hard-earned money and go back to Mexico and invest in his community in Mexico and in the Mexican economy. And so I think that this is interesting because um, having confronted the, the double bind, um, he makes the decision to um, actually leave the U.S. and and, and go back to Mexico um, and challenge the idea that you know he should become you know just a hardworking U.S. citizen and embrace his his new his new position. So I think that the the popularity of that song is a form of challenging uh, the double bind in which socially undocumented people often find themselves. Uh, I, I explore some of the work of Dolores Huerta and um, different uh, uh, farm worker activists in U.S. history. So there's this famous slogan, Si Se Puede, that Dolores Huerta coined um, that's often used um, in, in cases in which it seems like activist uh, work in which uh, one is kind of bumping up against oppressive forces that are insurmountable. And so there's this si se puede spirit in a lot of uh, immigrant activism that I think um, can be interpreted as a, as a way of challenging the double bind. Um, so, so in a chapter of my book, I go through different examples of ways in which I think that socially undocumented people are perceiving very clearly the double bind in which U.S. society uh, uh places them and also taking steps to challenge it. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the, one of the places my mind went when I picked up this book first was that you would taking all this analysis that you would be in favor of open borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned a ton about your discussion in the philosophy of immigration and the people who are actually working very hard on um, open borders mm-hmm. A philosophical perspective, but you're ultimately not an advocate of open borders. And I'd love to um, hear your reasons why. And then, but you do talk about demilitarizing um, the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's really crucial um, given your analysis of open borders debate. So, will you talk about why demilitarization is what you argue for and not for open borders? Sure. Um- and, and just to get started, I'd, I'd like to say that I think that um, the philosophical work on open borders is very rich and inspiring. And I, I agree with so much of what open borders theorists have to say. Uh, and, and in certain respects, I'm an open borders person myself. It's, my relationship with that literature, philosophically speaking, is very complicated. Um, yeah. So there are reasons why I'm not advocating um, an open borders framework in my book. Um, One is simply that the sorts of problems that I'm dealing with in in my work are not visible within an open borders paradigm, right? So in the sort of world that open borders theorists are describing, often in the realm of ideal theory, um, undocumented migration wouldn't exist. um, And a lot of the associated injustices, injustices just wouldn't come into play. So the sorts of problems that I'm describing aren't visible within an open borders framework. 
The second reason why I don't ultimately advocate open borders uh, is that, um, you know, as, as I state in my book, and as you point out, I mean, open borders theorists, um, in many respects, their, their work is quite utopian, but but philosophers who are doing work on, on these questions do try to take seriously um, the, the, the task of developing um, some some practical policy suggestions for implementing open borders. And so I think you know, if, if you if you study, uh, if one studies the literature carefully, you see um, open borders theorists do allow for certain types of uh, immigration restrictions uh, to, to actually make open borders work as an ideal. And so I argue that if you approach questions of immigration justice in a bottom-up fashion, and if you take socially undocumented experience seriously, you'll see that socially undocumented oppression would continue and would perhaps even be exacerbated under the sorts of restrictions that open borders theorists allow for. And, and to be clear, open borders theorists, the ones whose work I consult, they would vehemently oppose socially undocumented oppression. Um, but I think that if you approach these uh, these questions from within um, non-ideal theory in a bottom-up fashion, it calls into question some of the ways in which open borders proposals um, have been articulated and the types of restrictions that they would allow for. And, and oh, sorry, one more point. But if you have a, yeah, a follow up question about that, I'm happy to <laughs> address that as well. You know, I just I, I learned so much from that, the way that you because you you respect ideal theory. That's really clear in the book. But the way that you um, you show you show this, I think it's just very powerful in relationship to ideal theory. Thank, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, and, so, and someone that I try to take cues from is, you know, jo- Joseph Karens, who in so many respects really got the, the philosophical ball rolling in terms of writing about immigration. Um, so, so he is an open borders theorist, perhaps the most famous open borders theorist. But um, but also in, in some of his work, he says, look, he says we need realistic and ideal and, and idealistic approaches to thinking about immigration ethics. And so in some of his work, he he thinks about undocumented migration, which, again, isn't really an issue in the open borders paradigm. But he makes arguments for uh, giving a right to remain to, to some legally undocumented migrants who have been in, in, a, in a given state for an extended period of time. And I think that's really powerful work. Um, and so um, I. So I think that there, there is space to have conversations about um, the open borders ideal, but we do we do need bottom up approaches as well. And those bottom up approaches can actually be put productively into dialogue with um, open bo- open borders proposals developed in the realm of ideal theory. And, and one final point that I wanted to make is I, I do think that a, that a I don't want to say it's a downside of the open borders position, but I think that sometimes uh the ideal of open borders, we just kind of assume that it's the most progressive and radical uh, kind of policy vision that one could possibly point toward. Uh, and I think that sometimes the open borders position can get used in ways that can actually block um, other um, kind of progressive and potentially radical philosophical explorations of what immigration ethics could entail. And so that's another reason why I want to call it into question a little bit, because I don't th- I don't think that we should block other potentially revolutionary visions of immigration ethics that don't necessarily call for open borders. And I think that uh, de- de- demilitarization uh, as a policy alternative, as a philosophical proposal, 
Um, it's really important because it, it requires us to think about the materiality of borders in ways that the open borders position um, doesn't demand of us. So, so a lot of philosophical debates about um, immigration justice and borders actually don't really talk so much about what borders are and how they operate and how they're oppressive. Uh, and so, and, and so I think that there's a lot of philosophical space for us to engage the materiality of borders um, in, in ways that I think can have very productive philosophical and policy results. This is work that's happening within Latinx immigration philosophy. I think that, that thinks about the ways in which the U.S.-Mexico border functions as a symbol that's oppressive towards Latin Americans um, in the United States. And, and it's a different way of approaching immigration ethics um, and, and the ethics of borders. It's different from the way in which the conversation has played out in the open borders debate. And um, I, I, I want us to be vigorously attentive to those questions as well and, and not so swiftly settle on the open borders paradigm as kind of a, the only philosophical alternative uh, for, for bringing about um, the right vision of immigration ethics in society. Yeah, and that um, one of the major focuses of your analysis is how immigration policy and, and border policy in particular shapes the way that people come into the United States and so you have this analysis of the migrants journey um, through the Southern to and through the Southern border. Um, so um, what is that relationship that you analyze between immigration policy and the migrants journey? Yeah, so um, the migrant journey—it's—it's it's something you know—it's it's been getting quite a bit of attention um, in the media, right? When you think about migrants, um, Central American migrants hopping aboard La Bestia, for example, the, the train taking them through Mexico into the United States. When we think about um, sexual assault happening on the migrant journey um, and uh, people being, you know, uh, otherwise physically assaulted and even murdered along the way, right? I think that there's now more knowledge of the fact that the migrant journey itself is incredibly gruesome and that it's um it's a type of um it's a type of of, of oppression and human rights violation that's happening before united states borders are even reached uh, but in in my book, I, I consult interdisciplinary migration scholarship and, and some of this work that's you know coming out in in the media to call attention to the ways in which the migrant journey that's happening beyond U.S. borders is clearly a product of U.S. immigration policy. Um, and it's something that becomes visible, again, when we think about the materiality of borders, which is something that, I, you know, again, I think is so important and didn't necessarily happen in the open borders debate. Um, so you have... Um, in semi-recent U.S. history, uh, uh, prevention through deterrence is adopted as an immigration policy, and it's a, it's a policy that was designed to uh, make it much more difficult for migrants, uh, legally undocumented migrants, to enter the United States through urban ports of entry, right? So think about, again, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Um, in the past, before prevention through deterrence, people would often um, just try to run across the bridge, right? Um, you know, run into the United States and, um, and you know, find places to hide as they were being chased by immigration enforcement. Um, but they would be in urban areas. And if they were, if they weren't rounded up and deported back to Mexico, they would be, um, you know, in, a, in an urban area where they would have access to water and shelter. 
Um, so prevention through deterrence served to mil- militarize um, much of the U.S.-Mexico uh, border, particularly around these urban um, the, kind of these urban areas, um, and effectively funneled migrants um, into uh, the potentially dangerous and deadly Sonoran Desert, right? So now when you're crossing the border um, without legal authorization coming from Latin America, you're going to have to endure um, kind of the, the, the desert climate and, and the, the, these temperatures and um um, and, 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 and the animals and the lack of water, right, and the lack of shelter. And so many, many, many more migrants are dying as a result of this. And th- again, this, is clear, this, this, this isn't something that just kind of naturally happened. This was a very deliberate aspect of U.S. immigration policy. And it's something that is affecting people well beyond uh, U.S. borders. And so I think that... Uh, that in focusing on the migrant journey, it opens the door to to a a globalized discussion of immigration justice that's nevertheless clearly rooted in um, U.S. immigration policy and kind of of locally, not not locally crafted, but kind of a U.S. immigration policy that's um, uh, devoted to a particular region of the U.S., namely the U.S.-Mexico borderlands region. So, so that's why I spend considerable time discussing it and also exploring ways in which socially undocumented embodiment and oppression is actually happening well before, uh, long before U.S. borders themselves are reached. Yeah, and part of your analysis that I found really um, important was also that the U.S., we think of the U.S., that the U.S.-Mexico border is international because it's where the U.S. and Mexico meet. But you point to there's another um, sovereign nation there that a lot of people are getting driven into. So do you mind talking about that aspect, too, of the the sort of violation of indigenous sovereignty that's happening through this immigration policy? Yes. So, so of course, and, and, and again, um, th- this is another uh, reason uh, that I didn't mention why I think that the, um, the historical background um, uh, connected to socially undocumented embodiment is so important, right? Because as, um, as the U.S.-Mexico border is, is kind of being drawn up in different ways, right, uh, following the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, through which the U.S. Um, stole so much of Mexico's land, you see indigenous territories, um, their land is being bisected by um, the increasingly militarized U.S.-Mexico border. And so as a result of this, um, you know, indigenous territories um, are being, um, so, so migrants are having to cross indigenous land. Um, the Tejono O'odham are very involved in these discussions about the relationship between the U.S.-Mexico border wall and Tejono O'odham sovereignty. And there are uh, debates amongst the Tejono O'odham about um, the extent to which um, the Tejono O'odham should be helping um, legally undocumented migrants um, who are crossing their, their territories under these really difficult conditions because um, there are environmental and economic costs borne by indigenous groups um, when when you know, lots of migration, lots of migrants are crossing their t- territories. So is this something that indigenous people should be um, dealing with as a matter of immigration ethics, or is this the job of um, the United States government? Um, so a, another important part of the story of socially undocumented oppression is that um, many Native Americans, and particularly those who live in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands region, 
are socially undocumented, right? Um, clearly, they're, they're Native Americans. They have um, they have legal permission to be in the United States. They have you know group rights. They have um, they have, they have sovereign land, um, you know, in, in the United States and Mexico. Um, but because of the way in which they're read and they're seen and where they're located, they're often treated as so-called illegal immigrants, uh, even when they're on their, their, their own lands. Um, and so, um, the, the migrant journey, thinking about the migrant journey is, um, all, is also, um, helpful and important for thinking about the ways in which indigenous peoples are oppressed as undocumented migrants as a result of U.S. immigration policy. Great. So thank you so much for um, this wonderful discussion of, of this book. And so what are you working on now? Uh, yes. Thank you for, for, the, for the questions and for your time, Sarah. Um, right now, so I'm continuing to think about issues of immigration ethics um, and reproductive justice. Uh, and so I'm uh, kind of pushing forward with some of the themes that I take up in my book when I'm thinking about pregnancy and socially undocumented uh, embodiment. But I want to approach this question more broadly um, and think about ways in which material borders and barriers, including state and national borders, not not just national borders, uh, but how ways in which they serve to uh, violate the intimacy uh, of many vulnerable migrants and border crossers. And so I think that this becomes clear in cases of people who are crossing borders uh, for pregnancy-related medical care. Um, I've done some research on the experiences of people who have crossed state and national borders for abortion care um, and the ways in which that made them vulnerable to different types of uh, oppression. Um, indigenous groups that uh, we were just discussing uh, who have had their, their their traditional lands bisected by borders, but nevertheless have to find ways to cross those borders to participate in, in, in ceremonies and, and traditional practices. Um, how, how, how do borders violate in intimacy, uh, the intimacy of, of certain social groups? And how can we develop a feminist theory of borders that enables us to account for that? And so I think that it's going to require us to think about borders in terms of private realm oppression, e even though we think of, of borders as very much these kind of public realm entities. Um, but but how, how do borders violate intimacy and oppress in the private realm? And how can um, developing a feminist theory of borders uh, bring to light different forms of um, different aspects of, of oppression in connection to border crossing that perhaps haven't received as much attention and discussion as, as they ought to have? Oh, I'm excited. Thank Can't you. Wait. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate it.